1: Thanks for tuning in to episode 234 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. At the end of the last show, it was the morning of Saturday, December 13th, 1862, and the commander of the Federal's Left Grand Division, William Franklin, had just been given Ambrose Burnside's orders for the day. Franklin was already upset, since he had expected to receive Burnside's instructions hours before this, and now Franklin grew even more agitated, since the orders he'd just received weren't at all what he'd been expecting.
1: In his book on the Battle of Fredericksburg, Frank O'Reilly says Burnside's orders to Franklin were, quote, an astonishingly vague and rambling directive, end quote. You see, based on their conversation the night before, Franklin had expected to receive orders indicating that his assault against Prospect Hill on the southern sector of the battlefield, below Fredericksburg, was to be the main Union attack on December 13th. But Burnside's written instructions no longer seemed to reflect that.
0: Well behind schedule as he was, an already frustrated Franklin decided not to spend more time asking Burnside for clarification, nor did he ask the staff officer who had brought the orders if he knew anything of the Army commander's intentions. And so Franklin read and reread them, but was still unable to determine from the imprecise wording of the orders if Burnside expected him to hold his whole force in readiness to strike the extreme right of the Confederate line or if he was simply to make an immediate demonstration against Prospect Hill with one division.
1: In the end, Franklin decided these didn't seem to be instructions for a major attack by the left Grand Division, and so he chose to literally take the orders to mean he was to send out a single division to make a demonstration. In explaining his decision, Franklin would later say he assumed his part in the fighting that day would be to simply conduct, quote, an armed reconnaissance or an observation in force made of the enemy's lines.
0: Well, as we said in the last show, most historians today believe that Burnside intended for Franklin to make the main Union attack on December 13th, while right grand division commander bull sumner would be the one who made a demonstration as he sortied from fredericksburg to prevent longstreet from sending help down to stonewall jackson but although this was almost certainly burnside's intent he failed to clearly communicate this plan to the commanders of his grand divisions
1: having decided his job that morning was only to make a demonstration The orders did seem to plainly indicate that Franklin was obligated to do so as quickly as possible, so he gave the assignment to John Reynolds' first corps, advising Reynolds to send forward a single division but to keep it well supported. Reynolds immediately tapped George Meade's division of Pennsylvania Reserves for the task. But Meade was worried that this would be just one more of the same kind of piecemeal attacks that had failed to crack the rebel lines at Antietam, and so he asked if he was really to go forward with just his division. The answer Meade received was, That is General Burnside's orders.
0: John Reynolds' 1st Corps held the extreme left of the Army of the Potomac on the morning of December 13th. Reynolds, a Pennsylvanian, was well on his way to being one of the Army's rising stars. The three divisions that made up Reynolds' Corps were positioned with John Gibbon's division to the front, about three-quarters of a mile from the Confederate line manned by A.P. Hill's troops. Gibbon had been born near Philadelphia, but had spent his formative years in North Carolina. A West Point graduate and regular Army officer at the time of the outbreak of the Civil War, Gibbon had chosen to remain loyal to the Union. Three of his brothers, though, had gone with the Confederacy and were serving in the Army of Northern Virginia here at the Battle of Fredericksburg.
1: Reynolds' other two divisions, led by Abner Doubleday and George Meade, were formed up behind Gibbon. Doubleday had been a regular Army artillery officer, serving under major robert anderson at charleston south carolina when fort sumter was fired upon by confederate forces in april 1861 it was doubleday in fact who fired the first shot from the fort in reply to the rebel bombardment
0: george gordon Meade, like his friend and sometimes rival john reynolds also hailed from pennsylvania He was actually born in Spain, however, where his father, a wealthy Philadelphia merchant, was doing business at the time. Meade attended West Point, graduating in the class of 1835. Lieutenant Meade was assigned to the 3rd U.S. Artillery and saw some action in the Second Seminole War, but then he resigned his commission to pursue a career as a civil engineer.
1: Meade re-entered the Army in 1842 and participated in the Mexican-American War as a topographical engineer on the staff of old, rough-and-ready, Zachary Taylor. During the years after the war with Mexico, Meade worked on a variety of engineering projects, including the construction of lighthouses along the Atlantic coast. In 1861, when the Civil War broke out, he was in charge of the Great Lakes Engineering Survey.
0: Meade was a captain when the war started, but the governor of Pennsylvania used his influence to have Meade appointed a Brigadier General of Volunteers in August of 1861. The new general was assigned to the 2nd Brigade of the Pennsylvania Reserves. These regiments were units raised in the Keystone State that had exceeded the War Department's quota. Though they were eventually mustered into federal service, these Pennsylvania regiments retained their original reserve designation.
1: As commander of a brigade of Pennsylvania reserves, Meade served ably during the seven days' battles outside Richmond until he was badly wounded in the back and arm at Glendale. He recovered in time to lead his brigade at Second Bull Run, though. When John Reynolds, then the commander of the division, was pulled away and put in charge of the Keystone States militia during the Antietam campaign, Meade succeeded to command of the Pennsylvania Reserves, which he led at both South Mountain and Antietam. Then, when Joseph Hooker was wounded at Antietam, Meade temporarily was placed in charge of First Corps.
0: After that, Meade returned to divisional command, but he was promoted to Major General at the end of November 1862, which meant that at the Battle of Fredericksburg, he was the Army of the Potomac's senior division commander and also outranked at least two corps commanders. All of this is to say that George Meade was a seasoned officer with plenty of combat experience, and when he questioned whether his lone division was really supposed to go forward by itself, it wasn't because he was seeking to shirk the responsibility.
1: 1st Corps Commander John Reynolds gave Burnside's orders as he understood them, to his three division commanders. Reynolds chose his old division, now under Meade, to take the lead in the action, while Gibbon's division was to guard Meade's right flank. Doubleday would position his troops so that they protected Meade's left, while also guarding the left flank of the entire army."
0: As y'all recall, Franklin's other Corps commander in the left Grand Division was Baldy Smith, and his 6th Corps would keep an eye out for Reynolds' right flank, while continuing to guard the lower crossing site and keeping the lines of retreat back across the river open, as directed by Burnside's orders.
1: The Pennsylvania Reserves had mustered into Federal service late in 1861 10,000 strong. However, a half-dozen battles and a year of attrition had taken their toll, so that Meade's veterans now numbered only about 3,800 troops. However, two new regiments with full ranks had recently joined the division, bringing his strength up to about 4,500 men. As Meade would later recall, he put his troops in motion, quote, immediately on receiving orders. Meade's brigades deployed a quarter-mile south of a property known today as the slaughter Pen Farm. While Gibbons and Doubleday's divisions prepared to support them, the Pennsylvanians prepared for action, shedding their knapsacks and excess gear and piling it all up to be retrieved later. Before Meade could begin his advance, though, all heads in the waiting Union ranks suddenly swiveled in the same direction, as a single cannon boomed somewhere off to the left.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
0: The 13th of December opened with a dense fog enveloping the whole field. A part of our battery crept slowly from Hamilton's crossing down into the plain toward the river until we came to a cross hedgerow of cedar behind which we noiselessly formed in battery. Beyond the hedge, we could hear the Federal Infantry, Franklin's Corps, maneuvering, distinguishing a medley of voices, but could not see them. Evidently, they were only a few hundred yards distant, The fog commenced to lift between nine and ten o'clock, and exposed to our view, as we peered through the hedge, a grand spectacle of marshaled soldiery, in readiness for the fray, spread out in vast proportions on the level plain in our immediate front. With alertness, and yet fearing annihilation at their hands, in such close range of their infantry, we commenced to fire." The unexpected presence of our guns so close to them seemed to paralyze them and throw them into disorder. Instead of rushing for us and overwhelming us with their numbers, they were evidently afraid of us, judging no doubt that we had a strong force concealed behind the hedge, but we were far in advance of any supports, either of cavalry or infantry. Our fire must have been very effective and gave them a wholesome fear of us. Immediately after our first fire, we received the fire of their artillery, showing how ready their guns were for action. The rain of shot and shell upon us was terrific, both from their field batteries at close range and also from their big guns on the north bank of the river. But being so concealed by the hedge, the enemy's gunners shot too high, and so we escaped. We resumed firing after a short rest, but we were soon ordered to limber to the rear and we fell back under the cover of our guns, which opened from the hill in our rear and left, as the enemy began to advance." Private George W. Shreve, Henry's Virginia Battery, Stuart's Horse Artillery
1: When thus standing in line, a cannon boomed out on our left, at close range, a shot whizzed high in the air, "'passing over our heads from left to right along the line. "'Naturally supposing, from the position, "'twas one of our own batteries, "'we thought the gunners had had too much commissary this morning, "'and so remarked. "'Another report, then a third, "'each time the missile coming lower in the air, "'when they discovered "'twas the enemy. "'The order was given, down, "'when from the force of custom we fell face forward.' I suppose the whole line did so, excepting the field and some of the line officers, as I had no time to notice who remained standing, being naturally engaged in pressing down hard, bearing on and flattening out that I might not interfere with any of the flying iron, but courteously allow the right of way. This single gun, as subsequently learned, was commanded by Major Pelham. He soon got the range when his shells exploded low overhead and on the flanks of some of the regiments. I could now see some of the happenings, for after Major Pelham had introduced himself, got range, and etc., we suddenly became familiar with his manner, and were encouraged, to a certain extent, to raise our heads and look about while he amused himself. Moving his gun slightly to his left, he planted at least two solid-shot, or unexploded shells, in the prostrate ranks immediately on our front. One fellow was buried by his comrades in about five minutes after being killed. Corporal Bates Alexander, 7th Pennsylvania Reserves, Maggleton's Brigade
0: On the extreme right of the Confederate line, Jeb Stuart's rebel cavalry had skirmished with the federal picket line since dawn. Now, with Reynolds' Federals making their preparations across the way, Major John Pelham, the popular chief of Stuart's horse artillery, had a sudden inspiration. Pelham had found an ideal spot to put a cannon squarely on the Yankees' flank. He begged Stuart to let him try this idea and open an enfilading fire at close range on the massed
1: Union troops. This was just the sort of audacious thing to appeal to the colorful cavalry commander, and Stewart gave his approval. Once given the green light, Pelham set off with a twelve-pounder Napoleon from Captain Mathis Henry's horse battery. The Virginia cannon crew trotted down a secondary lane to the Bowling Green Road, and Pelham ordered them to drop trail in the southwest corner of the intersection, where he'd found a perfect feature in the terrain for the gun a slight depression obscured by a line of cedar trees growing along the road.
0: The cannon crew could roll their gun up out of the depression just far enough for the muzzle to peek out from the cedars. Once it was fired, the Napoleon's recoil would roll it back down into the depression, where hidden, it could be reloaded for the next shot. That first-hand account I read just a moment ago was from a member of this gun's crew, Private George Shreve. Shreve had enlisted in the spring of 1862 and first saw action at Yorktown during the Peninsula Campaign. He would serve as an artillerist until captured and paroled in the Shenandoah Valley in April 1865.
1: The fog had started to burn off, but the last bits of it still clung to the low ground, like the spot where Pelham had concealed Henry's lone cannon. As the Virginians of the gun crew got everything ready, they could clearly hear Meade's Pennsylvanians nearby, and if they snuck up and peered through the cedars, they could see the Yankees where they had halted just 400 yards away as they prepared to advance against A.P. Hill's line. When Pelham gave the command to open fire, the report from the lone rebel gun broke the morning calm. It was 10 a.m.
0: In Frank O'Reilly's book, he writes, quote, The Northerners recoiled in surprise, and Captain Henry's artillerists continued to shell the dumbfounded Bluecoats as fast as they could load. Confusion marred the alignment of the densely packed Yankees. Pelham's men imagined they saw the Union soldiers fall down, paralyzed with fear. Moments later, Northern artillery wheeled in front and challenged the Confederates. By Pelham's third round, the Union guns returned the fire. Yankee batteries responded from Meade's front and from Stafford Heights across the river. The noise was deafening, and the explosions were unnerving, but Pelham suffered no real harm. His single gun and crew proved too elusive for the Yankees to hit.
1: John Pelham was 24 years old in December 1862. He was young, courageous, and impatient enough to go looking for trouble, as he did here when he gathered up this gun crew from Henry's Battery, and set out to annoy the enemy. Born near Alexandria, Alabama in 1838, he was a natural and gifted horseman. In 1856, he accepted an appointment to West Point, but by 1861, with war looming, he withdrew from the academy, a week shy of his graduation, to head south and offer his services to the Confederacy he was commissioned a First Lieutenant of Artillery, and shortly thereafter, at the First Battle of Manassas, he caught the eye of Jeb Stuart, who authorized the brash young lieutenant to put together a six-piece battery of horse artillery. Pelham and his men fought well at Second Manassas, Antietam, and other engagements in between. Here at Fredericksburg, Pelham, now a major and in command of all of Stuart's horse artillery, looked to leave his mark on the battle by boldly tripping up Franklin's Yankees as they prepared to advance against A.P. Hill.
0: Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were observing Pelham's fight from Prospect Hill. A.P. Hill joined them, and together they admired his audacity. Lee then assured Pelham's immortality when he said, "'It is glorious to see such courage in one so young.'"
1: As some federal infantry from Doubleday's division probed forward to try and root out the pesky Confederate gun, Rooney Lee's rebel cavalry screen engaged the Yankees, and Pelham ordered his men to cease firing, for a bit, so as not to give away their exact position. When Jeb Stuart sent a message asking how everything was going, Pelham coolly responded, Go back and tell General Stuart that I am doing first-rate.
0: To bolster Pelham's firepower, Stuart dispatched another cannon, a Blakely rifle. However, as it moved up, the Federals observed it, and since there wasn't enough room in the Depression for it, it provided an easy target for the Union guns. The Blakely soon suffered a direct hit and was forced to withdraw.
1: Hard-pressed by the Federal infantry Doubleday had sent forward, the Confederate cavalry had also been forced to fall back, leaving Pelham to his own devices. The Union counter-battery fire was starting to tell on the gun crew, causing several casualties, and eventually Pelham had to lend a hand to help man the cannon. Ammunition started to run low, and Pelham knew he couldn't hold on much longer. Stewart supposedly sent a couple of messages, giving permission for Pelham to withdraw, and when the third such invitation arrived about 11 o'clock, The young Major decided it was time to go. Captain Henry and his men limbered up their Napoleon and fell back to Hamilton's crossing.
0: Pelham and Henry had attacked an entire wing of the Union Army and single-handedly held up the enemy's advance for an entire hour. Nothing so unnerves an infantryman as artillery fire from the flank or rear, and during the shelling, the soldiers in Meade's and Gibbon's divisions had gone to ground, remaining prone so as to avoid the worst of the flying metal. Doubleday's troops, advancing to the left of Meade, surged forward after Pelham withdrew and seized the intersection where his gun had been concealed, but did no more. In fact, Doubleday's entire division was now focused solely on remaining in its present position and protecting the extreme flank of the army, with the result that Meade would be unsupported on his left when he moved forward.
1: Robert E. Lee glorified the young officer by referring to him as the gallant Pelham in his official report. However, Captain Henry and his gunners were largely overlooked in the praise that was heaped upon Pelham so we'll give them their due here and now. At any rate, we'll wait until the next show to get to the belated federal advance on Franklin's front, but we wanted to close this show by pointing out that the spot from which Pelham and Henry so bedeviled the Yankees that December morning is a good example of what happens when the land of a Civil War battlefield is unprotected and is gobbled up by development. In last week's book recommendation, Simply Murder, The Battle of Fredericksburg, authors Mikowski and White point out that in 1862 the area now known as Pelham's Crossing was fairly wide open, although cedar trees lined the roads and ditch fences cut across the land. But today the area has been swallowed up by suburban development. Lost in the hustle and bustle of traffic whizzing by, are two interpretive markers and a low stone monument standing near the busy intersection of Tidewater Trail and Benchmark Road. The small monument once sat 10 feet closer to the road, but when the Virginia Department of Transportation widened the road in 2006, the monument was uprooted. It spent many months lying on its side before being reset in its current location. That's a rather sad tale. But thankfully, over the years, at many other spots where Civil War battles took place, the tireless efforts of organizations like the Civil War Trust and local groups like the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust at Fredericksburg have saved acres and acres of land so that future generations can visit those sites and walk the actual ground where the soldiers fought. And by visiting those sites, gain a greater appreciation for the meaning of the struggle between the Union and the Confederacy. Rather than a book recommendation with this episode, Tracy and I would simply like to encourage you to support those organizations that are dedicated to purchasing, saving, and preserving the land where our Civil War battles were fought. Groups like the Civil War Trust and local groups like the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust. The work they do is indispensable to the cause of battlefield preservation.
0: Thanks, everyone.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.